and speak and be like, yeah, sure. And then boom, golden egg, command, on command, you know. <laughs> so anyways, they've been doing it for a long time and, uh, you know, uh, man, for once again, like 14 years. And so part of my, I feel a little empathetic in the sense that like, man, you guys got to keep producing and producing, you know. <laughs> and uh, anyways, um, uh, good thing they're, they're chickens made out of gold, right? Amen. All right. So. Uh, today, I'll be wrapping up uh, the segment of our sermon series connected to the topic of being responsible for his bride. And I want to uh, begin actually by recapping some uh, of the takeaways from earlier sermons this month on the topic. We've got to revisit the golden eggs that have been laid. And they're all in our podcast, so you guys could uh, take a look at that if you want. Ryan kicked us off and led us with, uh, left us with some awesome questions for all of us to think about. What does it look like for you to radically love the body of Christ? What does it look like for you to give yourself to your brothers and sisters? What if we had 200 people here saying, this is a place, this place has to be better because I am here. I'm going to be involved with helping this thing. What if our whole orientation is calling out the greatness in the people around us through, the radical, through radical encouragement? The following week, uh, Suki talks about how, uh, how the enemy's ploy is to divide us because a kingdom divided cannot stand. The enemy employs every trick in the book to convince us that we are all different and separate from each other. But in truth, there's one body, and one bride, and hence our mission is a cooperative one. And then finally, from last week, Vince encourages us to cross over from perceiving with our natural eyes into the spiritual. And our goal as brothers and sisters is to support each other in that crossing and invite each other in helping us see more with our spiritual eyes and discern our motivations. So today, uh, I'll be talking about unity and commitment in the body of Christ after I get a quick drink. Awesome. Uh, so Suki's last sermon really resonated with me. I'll be kind of tying all, to, uh, all the, the three together. And uh, the, sermon, uh, the sermon does talk about the differences that we, uh, that we might perceive in, in, in ourselves and each other. And the enemy finds every suggestion of difference to ostracize us from each other. And uh, to give you a sense of how afflicted I was uh, by this when I first visited the ARC, uh, I actually came as a transfer student at Cal, uh, but I was four years behind my high school cohort, so I felt an age gap, like a really, <laughs> really small one, but it felt really pronounced. And I felt less academically acute as everyone else who made it to Cal straight from high school. And even though I was so similar to the folks at the ARC during, at, at ARC, at the ARC during the time, early to mid-20s, Majority Asian American Cal students with alums that are that have a charismatic slant. Uh, I still find my uh, I still manage to find a way to make myself an other. Actually, in one of my visits, uh, I was talking to uh, a member in the ARC, and that that uh, that brother asked how my week was doing, and I was like, you know what? Here's my moment to connect. Five seconds deep in mid sentence, the person with a perfect smile <laughs> nodded and left the conversation. <laughs> Walked away and talked to someone else. <laughs> My fragile esteem sank just a little more during that moment. <laughs> and I was about to draw another line and pare down even further who I allowed myself to relate with. And as you could tell, there's no end to that. I was on my way to form a very small club of united Christians, a fellowship with my own holy trinity. <laughs> you, know, you, guys know that, uh, you guys know that song uh, from De La Soul, Me, Myself, and I? Yeah, it's my, my holy trinity. So I confided what I was experiencing internally to another ARC member uh, who was here six months before me. 
And she told me something that always stuck. She said, we're all different, but the thing that brings us together is that we all love Jesus. And in my head, I was like, I never thought about, about it that way before. You're one wise lady, I'm going to marry you. <laughs> so, and, uh, okay. You guys can guess who that person is. Uh, so anyways, kind of uh, looking back, sometimes when I look at the church, uh, I see a hospital, a hospital of broken people, but we all have a hope of recovery. Other times when I look at the church, I actually see a, uh, porcupines trying to give other porcupines a hug. <laughs> so in a sense, we're just a bunch of hospitalized porcupines <laughs> attempting like a, a mass group hug. And so you guys can imagine the, the logistical nightmare. Uh, but Jesus, Jesus wants to turn us into sheep. Yeah, fluffy sheep. Okay. All, right. All right, anyways. Uh, <laughs> so it's been uh, about 12 years since I first visited ARC. And since then, a, a lot of us have experienced the discomforts of the growing pains uh, through the various stages. And we've been largely homogenous as a church, but slowly broadening. So gradually, we have broader differences to work out. Now, now that may include actually the influences of America's current political climate. During the event of Trump's election, uh, it's brought a lot of strain within the relationship of the American church. Porcupine spikes flared up. A lot of folks in American, uh, of the American church were pricked and stabbed by each other. Many people became disillusioned by the church, and those shockwaves hit us as well. Bring it home, during one of our impact makers meetings in 2018, we invited Erina Kim Eubanks to guest speak and lead us in an activity. And to get a general sense of where people's political ideologies were in the limited spectrum of bi bipartisan politics, we divided up into left, right, and middle. The results were one-third of us were in the left, one-third of us were in the right, and one-third of us were in the middle. And someone at the end of the meeting actually came up to me and, and was astounded that we can all be under the same roof, maintaining honor for one another, one another, having uncomfortable yet honest conversations with each other without tearing each other apart. Isn't that remarkable? So we're presented with an astonishing opportunity. We have a quote real quick by an evangelical theologian who I know nothing about. Uh, his name is uh, D.A. Carson, okay? Uh, ideally, the church itself is not made up of natural friends. It is made up of natural enemies. What binds us together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything of that sort. Christians come together not because they form a natural collocation, but because they have been saved by Jesus Christ and owe him a common allegiance. In the light of this common allegiance, in the light of the fact that they have all been loved by Jesus himself, they commit themselves to doing what he says, and he commands us, he commands them to love one another. In this light, they are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. Another drink. trying to not spill on myself. It's a wide lip bottle. So I love how Jesus said, they will say to us, they will know that you are not my disciples. You are my disciples. Oh, thank you. If you love one another. Why? Because if we accomplish this, it is indeed a sign and a wonder. Not because it's easy, but because it's hard. <laughs> In fact, it is impossible without Christ. But through it, through it, 
we uncover the substance of our faith as well as our witness to the world, the substance of our witness to the world. It can be expensive for us because it, had, it has cost Jesus everything. Yet there is hope of resurrection. So really quickly, I want to give us an analogy. We're kind of like this big ship on a journey heading somewhere that God has in mind. And in that ship, it's carrying all types of animals <laughs> of all different kinds of species, including the kinds that would otherwise devour each other in the outside world. I don't know if you guys get, you guys, nobody got it. Okay, does that sound familiar to anyone? Okay, all right, all right, I'll let you think about it. So, so how do we stay on board uh, this ship during the, on the ship during this journey, this treacherous journey? How do we stay committed? This actually becomes a question of how do we stay encouraged, okay? There are so many ways our connection with God and one another can be challenged. Likewise, there are so many ways our connection with God and one another can be deepened. And since it's difficult to be, I guess, comprehensive in one sermon today, I just want to share with you guys a few tools that have personally helped, been helpful for me. So the first question when we come across roadblocks and obstacles and challenges is, are they setbacks or are they opportunities? Are they setbacks or are they opportunities? The way you define it can potentially make all the difference, okay? As we gaze out into the promised land, okay? Do you see giants or do you see giant grapes? Okay, okay we like that. Okay, all right, anyways. So we're gonna start with our, I see giant grapes. Okay, so let's, let's start out with our relationship with God, okay? Have you, have you ever had times when meeting God is so easy and other times when all of a sudden he feels so distant, okay? Sometimes you open the Bible and the scriptures just leap out at you. Sermons feel like they're especially catered specifically to you. You enter in worship, like today, and your heart comes alive. Praising Jesus just comes effortlessly, like a stream. Or tears come out of, your, uh, come, come out of you, <laughs> like water from a rock. Other times, okay, worship feels dry. Sermons don't really connect. And you even struggle to just stay awake during every quiet time. If you are feeling any of these symptoms, don't worry, you're not alone. In fact, God is doing something remarkable, okay? And he doesn't want to keep us from remarkable things, so we should not only expect it, but we should expect it with a sense of hope that our father, our good father, has good gifts for his children, all right? Graham Cracker, Graham, Graham Cracker, Graham, Graham, uh, Graham Cracker, wow, wow, Freudian slip, <laughs> wow, okay. Hey, right. so I would, okay. Anyway, I used to call him like graham cracker cookie, like just because it was, but but right now it just doesn't it doesn't ring well so well. Okay, all right. So, anyways, honest mistake. Okay, so Graham Cook teaches us that there are seasons of manifestation and seasons of hiddenness. So, if you guys have been around me, I, uh, talk, I bring this up once in a while. So, in seasons of manifestation, God enters into our realm. These are seasons of blessing. So I have some, I have some dramatic manifestation experiences to share and similarly some guidance to offer in this area. But for the purposes of today, uh, I'll just be using more day-to-day examples. Uh, I want to say that manifestations don't necessarily have to be dramatic to be powerful, okay? So I just want to say that. And, and so anyways, uh, once again, the, remember the when, you, when you read the scripture, it leaps out at you, you worship, your heart just... Streams of praise just flow out of your mouth. Those are manifestive, manifestive times. 
in seasons of hidden, hiddenness, okay, there's also seasons of hiddenness. And in this type of, type of moment, God invites us into his realm. These are seasons of building. So, for instance, like, if you're coming into worship, one of my experiences with a season of uh, hiddenness in the, in the time of worship, it's like, oh, man, I'm just not connecting to the worship for, for whatever reason. I, God, I can't really see you. But then, you know, I know that he's doing some kind of inviting in my life. He's doing some kind of building. So in my heart, I'm like, you know what? What I could see is the goodness of the people that are around me, okay? What I could see is what you have done in my life here, here, here. And guess what? Before long, you know, your heart just opens up again, and it's able to receive God and his, and his goodness. And what I love about this is, you know, God ha- it, it appears like a veil, right? But anytime he's doing, um, you know, some building and inviting in your life, it's like we have an opportunity to just, like, poke holes in, in heaven. Poke holes, poke holes, poke holes. There's a hole there. There was a veil there. I could see him. And before long, you know, it just, the heavens just kind of open up. And so we're, we're really caught up with God coming in. And these are beautiful moments, you know, don't, don't get me wrong, coming in and meeting us. But sometimes he's like, you know what? I've been meeting you at your house. Why don't you come and meet me at my house? And then we get to manifest, manifest to God. <laughs> hey, I'm here, you know, all right? And he, you'll, you'll find him, hey, I've been waiting for you. I've been waiting for you. So... You think that God has hidden himself from you? No. He's building something in your life and extending his invitation to you to lean in. So chances are some areas of your life are experience, you're experiencing manifestation while others are you're experiencing hiddenness. So once again, you know, uh, it, um, you don't have to look at it as, you know, uh, you're experiencing an entire season of hiddenness, you know. So for instance, when I first came, Worship uh, to the ark, worship was easy for me to gauge in. A sermon was connecting, but my relationships, God was, build, was building. It was, it, was, it, was, it was hard. If one area is hard, don't worry. He's not done with you yet, right? Amen. All right. Really thirsty. <laughs> hmm. All right. Okay. So... <laughs> There are seasons of hiddenness and seasons of manifestation. Also, that's in, I guess, in the sense and in the dimensions of our relationships. When we observe our relationship with ourselves, each other, and the church, there will be moments when certain aspects of relationships come easily and moments when they don't. So when we head roadblocks and we're tempted to live in discouragement, we must ask ourselves, what is he building? Where is the invitation? How do we usher our relationships into his realm? Like Vince's uh, message, Christian relationships isn't sterile. There's an element of it that is frictive, but God has a purpose, and friction sharpens us if we stick around. So when we are offended and our natural inclination is to separate ourselves, roadblocks, setbacks, we have to ask ourselves, where's the opportunity? Okay? And uh, now offense, okay, what is offense? Offense can actually, I guess, Offense, we all know what offense is, right? But if we, if we think about it in terms of op- opportunity, offense can ve- be very much a detection of strength or grace in a certain area of your life. So grace meaning ability given by God that you otherwise wouldn't have. They can be skills, valuable sensibilities that you have cultivated because of your upbringing, cultural capital you've gained, 
education you receive, strength that comes from your personality or temperamental disposition, and even uh, gifts of the spirit. When we're offended, it's usually because someone didn't handle something the way we think they should. But where did that sense of should come from? You think it's easy for them because you know what? It's easy for you. That's grace. We think they're withholding something that is dispensable to them because, you know what? It's actually dispensable for us. So you attribute it to defectiveness, how inept, how graceless. However, if you're careful to harness your offense, you might be detecting a grace that you have, a gift, a strength. And if you stick around long enough and work it out, underneath all that emotional junk that comes with it is the potential of refined gold that is meant to benefit those around you. Okay, especially those without it, especially those without it. On the other hand, if you hold on to your offense, we separate ourselves along with the grace that we have and potentially the grace that the other party actually needs. So I often hear the ark doesn't value this expression of God's heart or that expression of God's heart. That's not true. You probably haven't talked to enough people <laughs> yet. But David, I've talked to everyone. No one at the ark... <laughs> No one at the ark cares about what I care about. Then as long as you are here, that value lives within our community. <laughs> Amen? Okay? So imagine all of us doing yard work. I like these analogies. Some people are trimming bushes. Some people are raking leaves. The lawn is being mowed. But there are all these overgrown weeds everywhere that needs to be dug up. And you ask, why isn't anyone digging up those weeds? Maybe because the shovel is in your hands. <laughs> all right? So, uh, really quickly, uh, you know, just a quick shout out, you know, uh, uh, you know, shout out to Kevin Chen. You know, he could be asking, why isn't anyone teaching biblical, uh, biblical and practical stewardship of finances? Isn't that important? And he started the, uh, the what is it, the investment class, the biblical finance uh, 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 class. And anyways, kind of like what Ryan said, he created the value that he wanted to see in the church, okay? So if you want to see a value in the church, create it. Final point on this topic, if you have a strength that you are eager to contribute, you have to manage your offense, okay? Otherwise, you aren't safe. It's like I have a flower on this hand, but without knowing it, you have a knife on the other. <laughs> it's like, come here. <laughs> I got this flower to give you. <laughs> come here. And you <laughs> And people feel kind of uneasy. <laughs> and you're like, oh, you know? All right? So another analogy is it's like you're a soldier who wants to contribute to battle. Great. Before we issue you your gun, do you know who your enemies are? <laughs> All right? Okay? It's like that person there, he's holding us back. That person there, he's causing us to, to, to stumble, whatever. Maybe because he's wounded. Okay? All right? A lot of times we shoot our own soldiers, right? Friendly fire. So harness your offense. Okay. Now, if we're, not, uh, if, if we're not on that spectrum, some of us might have a more subtle form of disappointment that we're experiencing. For some of us, it's not really offense, but a subtler form of disappointment that we are dealing with. For instance, when you attend home groups, for example, you expect to find a family of kindred spirits. I just imagine coming to home group, knocking, okay? And then whatever happens in there, I leave, you know, arms to arms with my brothers, tears of joy streaming down her face, you know, going to our car and say, 
Like, I'll see you next week, man. <laughs> I love you. But instead, but instead, you find a grab bag of randomly assorted people that you just don't care too much to be around. <laughs> All right? Because you're the beautiful flower in there. <laughs> okay? That's just at the surface. Who are they really, right? So when you pull the gold out of them, gold will come out of you, right? So if you want to encounter more of God's love, actually, well, we all want to encounter more of God's love, but sometimes the only way that he can, we could, he, we can, we can, struggling with the pronouns, we can receive more of God's love for him is for him to soften and expand our hearts and make it bigger, right? So if your heart is being stretched, ugh, it's a good thing. He's preparing you to receive more of his love and in turn pour it out. Amen? Okay. Has anyone heard of uh, John Muir? <laughs> this is really weird, I know. My wife is probably laughing because she knows me. Okay. He's given uh, credit for supporting the preservation of national parks like Yosemite. I don't have any real criticism for him, but I think this is useful for us. However, he is criticized <laughs> for spending his life protecting magnificent rocks hundreds of miles away, but having the un unattended consequence of overlooking and undervaluing valuing the wilderness that is all around us. Therefore, we take for granted, fail to maintain, and maltreat the beauty that is immediately underneath our feet. Man, I, I, I need a camel back. <laughs> All right. Man, try. Okay. So, uh, it's funny. Uh, Ening and I, we, we hang out at uh, Marin a lot, where, uh, where Ryan's from. And I went to the Tiburon Library. And I actually uh, stumbled upon the uh, article. I'm looking at Ryan because he's from Tiburon. I stumbled upon an article that talks about why nature is so healing. They examined programs uh, that took youth who suffered from violence in the inner city and war veterans with PTSD and took them out into nature for weeks at a time and noticed that it made a dramatic difference in alleviating their symptoms and improving their well-being. They suggested that instead of just giving people pills, Kayaks should be seriously considered as part of the healthcare program for, for people who need it. <laughs> it mentions that the human brain appreciates this thing called fractals. If you don't know what fractals are, you could talk to Ben Wormlington. We had a really interesting conversation about fractals. It's the repetition of things that are the same but with variation. For instance, the shell of snails, trees and the branches, snowflakes, rocks, they're all borderline mundane and repetitive, yet they also are subtly interesting, beautiful, healing to the mind. Sounds like church and home groups, <laughs> right? You might not always get Half Dome or Niagara Falls, although we often do, <laughs> you know, but instead you get the humble yet beautiful familiarity of the Bay and Tilden. But honestly, people flock here because it's indeed beautiful. In our church office, you know, as staff, we start our day with short devotional together. They're simple, rarely dramatic or sensational. They're often repetitive and outwardly mundane. They aren't usually elaborative. We would read the word together, share about ourselves, pray for each other and the church. And since we do this three days out of the week, we're likely to catch ourselves on an off day where we just don't feel like praying or reading the Bible or even feel like talking to another human being. But we do. And guess what? I realized if I let it, this space carries the power to transform my life. 
I've been so encouraged by Jackie and Lauren and Christina, and we sow into each other's lives little by little, but with consistency over time, consistency over time, it has the power to pay great dividends. All right. In the same article that talks about the healing of the mind that happens through nature, it talks about what contributes to mental illness. Rumination. Rumination is when you look into your past hurts, your traumas, and offenses, and revisit them, and revisit them again. When we, when we ruminate, we actually reproduce the same chemistry in our brain and body of a given event. Your brain stimulates the trauma for you as if it actually occurred. And in that state, it can't tell the difference between what's simulated and what's reality. The experience can be simulated over and over and over again. The problem is, it actually reinforces itself. And a wall begins to build up, preventing new information from getting in. So even if people are demonstrating love to us and they are safe, it doesn't register. Our mind blocks it out because it is favoring patterns of the, of the, the worldview that it has artificially generated. Eventually, our ability to relate with one another begins to deteriorate, and our relationships begin to deteriorate as well. And in an odd way, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So let's talk about prophecy, okay? <laughs> so often when we think about prophecy, it looks something like this. I, I once heard a testimony from a woman about a, uh, a prophecy that she received. And the word was that she was going to marry a, a Caucasian man who loved the Lord. She was Chinese, by the way. <laughs> It's like, why is that important? Okay. Uh, they were going to buy a house. They, they would buy a house with a white picket fence. And they would have a baby girl. And that lady, she, she, she said, <laughs> you know, that year she met a Caucasian man <laughs> who loved the Lord. Okay. They ended up buying a house with a white picket fence. But the doctor said they, they were going to have a boy. <laughs> came time for delivery. Okay. They, you know, the baby came out. And it was a girl, right? Okay, yeah. So that kind of prophecy, okay, is called foretelling. Oh, actually, I don't have a slide for that. Um, foretelling, without any way of advance notice, the Holy Spirit provides intuition about events in the future. So it's, this is powerful, right? Okay, and, and we, you know, we gravitate towards this. However, there's another way to engage the prophetic. About 15 years ago, I read an interview with Rick Warren, author of Purpose Driven Life and pastor of a megachurch reaching thousands of lives. And they asked him how he would describe his journey okay, uh, to all this breakthrough and apparent success. Not that these are necessarily the markers for our success, right? But guess what he said? He said that he prophesied his way into it. He prophesied his way into it. In other words, he kind of spoke, he kind of spoke it into ex existence. So this kind of prophecy Okay, it's what we call fourth calling. Fourth calling. You partner with the desires and priorities of God's heart and call them into existence, owning the desires of, and priorities of God's heart, and we co-create with them, right? You call them into being with words, your thoughts, and actually, most importantly, your actions, right? Amen? So coming back to commitment, how do we stay on the ship? How do we stay in the ship without devouring one another? What do we do when we encounter disappointment or stagnancy between God, others, the church, and most importantly, ourselves? How do we engage in the moments between promise and fulfillment? Because pre-fulfillment often looks like shortcoming. Pre-fulfillment often looks like shortcoming. Going back to the res responsibility for the bride. So here's the image of the bride that has been fore foretold. This is, 
the desire of, of, of Christ's heart for, the, for, for his bride, his vision uh, for his, his bride as such. In, in Ephesians 5.25, oh, it's okay. Uh, it says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loves, loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Not so sure about the wrinkle. That's <laughs> but in Revelations 19.7.9, let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and the bride has made herself ready. It was granted, granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the, bright, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he has said to me, these are the true words of God. Okay, so that's the image of the bride. But what if the bride we see today is not what she is meant to be? How do we handle it if the bride is ignorant, consciously or subconsciously racist, immature, insecure, lackadaisical, judgmental, self-righteous, hypocritical, deceived, powerless, hurt, or just downright broken? Let's go to uh, Mark 11. 25. Once again, how do we handle it if the bride is ignorant, consciously or subconsciously racist, immature, insecure, lackadaisical, judgmental, self-righteous, hypocritical, deceived, powerless, hurt, or just downright broken? We look at Mark 11. Uh, we'll just go ahead and read this. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing in the distance a, f a fig tree and, and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And the disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought, bought the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he, he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it into a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him. Because all the crowds was astonished at his teachings. And when the evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that, he, he said, uh, believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone so that your father also has who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. Almost there, guys. When I first read this passage, I was semi-amazed by Jesus' mastery over the elements, but mostly perplexed because I felt, I felt it was uncharacteristic of who I assumed Jesus to be. Jesus, why did you have to wither that tree? 
Jesus, why can't you just learn to eat fruits in season? <laughs> it's more of a, it's a more sustainable practice. Uh, so, what does this, what does all, what all this, what does all this mean? Clearly, he was trying to make a point. Today, when I read this passage, I come away with three angles of, uh, to approach a, a takeaway. The first is a sobering one. Mark 11 reveals his pending judgment on the religious bodies that fail to bear the fruits that they should. Instead, we see a temple of God degrade into what he calls a den of robbers. Outwardly, the promise of fruit for those who are hungry for God. But inside, instead of feeding the spiritually hungry, they devour them once they enter. He confronts systems of religious corruption, then encourages us to have faith that its mountains can be uprooted and drowned into the sea. Yet, in the face off against the monumental shortcomings of man, still present is the call to forgive. Still present is the call to forgive. Not to say that it doesn't exist in this church, in, the, in this church or just church, but chances are the human shortcomings that we typically face in the body of Christ on a day-to-day -day basis aren't as conclusively sinister or malicious as what's described here. I left a few churches in the past where I was effectively uh, upsetting the pastors. And if you guys have questions about that, I can talk about that. Yeah. I, but they don't conspire to kill me, right? Uh, yet it stands as a potent warning. Once again, uh, although there are exceptions, but pro there are exceptions, but providing most people with the benefit of the doubt, Suki stated a few sermons ago, everyone is just trying their best. Everyone is just trying their best. What if that is more reflective of the general state of the church as we know it? This brings me to my second inference of Mark 11. With enough faith, you can bring anything to pass. Fourth calling prophecy. Even if, you have, even if that faith is expressed in an unredeemed form, you can wither a tree down to its roots before its time it's up, is up. It's not even a barren, fruitless tree. It's just not in season. It may be a perfectly fruit, good fruit-bearing tree that is operating according to its natural timeline, from manifestation to hiddenness, to hiddenness to manifestation, from apparent blessing to building, to building that takes place behind the scenes. But with enough faith expressed by your determination, it's possible not only to prevent that fruit from coming forth, but you can get the remaining leaves it does have to unravel and fall off. Fourth calling prophecy. Naturally, it'll bear fruit in its, its own timeline, its right time but you can forth call the supernatural into existence and bring death where life is intended to exist. My neighbors have a plum tree in their backyard, but 80% of its branches actually extend over our fence into our yard. Uh, last year, it produced tons of little plums, and our two-and-a-half-year-old daughter, Joni, she, she loves to eat them. But this year, nothing, or 2019, nothing. Why? It's storing up its energy for next year, okay? And since we moved in almost seven years ago, it has rather consistently alternated from bearing tremendous fruit one year to resting in another year. This past year in 2019, it's been on sabbatical. <laughs> Hiddenness. But in 2020, in 2020, okay, I know what to expect, okay? <laughs> All right. Uh, you know what else can be accomplished by faith? God's original intention is fruitfulness. That is the hope. He says, my house shall be a house of prayer for all the nations. So our job is to continue to partner with God in hope to bring his vision, his vision into fruition. Amen? Okay, lastly. Okay, almost there. 
Lastly, this can be applied to our relationship with the Big C Church, the Church of America, your personal relationship to the Ark, and your relationship with yourself. Be careful about applying this to unhealthy dating relationships. You might end up eating twigs and leaves thinking that that's what real fruit tastes like. Okay. But it's okay. We've got a lot of discerning palates here. So you've got to talk to those folks. Okay. I, there's a lot of qualifications in everything I'm saying. <laughs> Anyways. Uh, by the way, so if you want to, we, we just need a dialogue. Um, for my final takeaway, what if you just don't have it in you to prophesy life into church, others, or yourself anymore? Chances are that hope has been suffocated by mountains of hurt, grief, disappointment, disillusionment, and various shortcomings. If that stays there long enough, it accumulates into bitterness and unforgiveness, adding to the weight. And if we're not careful, if we're too fixated on digging out the dirt of others, and even yourself, that dirt piles into a mountain. And underneath that pile lies your soul, bearing all the weight as you shovel on. If you dig looking for dirt, you'll, you'll find more dirt. You know, there's no answers there. Jesus already diagnosed that. <laughs> he already diagnosed the conditions of our heart. There's no answers there, right? And at the same time, once again, as you're digging for dirt, you'll miss all the gold because you've become so tunnel-visioned. Once again, the image of you digging dirt, coming back on top of yourself. The mountains pile on, the mount, mountains pile on, the, the, you know, the, the dirt piles on into a mountain. However, through the power of Christ, you can command those mountains to dive into the ocean. Okay? You can command those mountains to dive into the ocean. Okay? If you have faith and you believe that you have received it, you just need faith. And if that's you, let me ask, according to Jesus, how much faith does it take to move a mountain? How much? Mustard seed, right? So giving God the one denarii you have, partner with God one step at a time, incrementally. Okay, if you have faith of a mustard seed you can, and you want to move mountains, it's okay. Start with pebbles. <laughs> then boulders. You know, cumulatively your faith just increases. And before you know it, Jesus will help you move mountains that are suffocating your heart. We're almost there, guys. We may have been exercising a form of, we may have been exercising a form of faith that is detached from the character of God. Without knowing, we observe disintegration, disintegration that we are meant to restore, but partner with the disintegration from ruminating, generating destructive conclusions in our internal narratives that we subconsciously or consciously reinforce, and without knowing it, we are forth calling the very things that we're trying to eliminate into existence, making them into reality. We need to, we need to instead integrate the truth of our observations our immediate experiences with the truth of God's goodness in our internal narratives. Is your thought life, okay, the big question is, is your thought life regarding a certain matter, okay, hurting, serving or hurting your relationship with yourself, with God, and others? Once again, is your thought life regarding a certain matter serving or hurting your relationship with yourself, with God, and others? Once again, the wonderful thing is that you have the power to change that, and all it takes is a uh, mustard seed. All right. Almost there, guys. About to land the plane. All right. For some of us, the mountain we need that we need to move is an internal one. For others, that mountain is an external injustice that we are called to dismantle. Amen? But as we face all the shortcomings of humanity and the church in its many forms, Jesus commands us to forgive as we continue our work. It's part of our spiritual hygiene as well as our a relational imperative. The ministry of the church 
involves the proclamation of truth. Amen? But that ministry is also a ministry of reconciliation. Okay, we have a lot of movements in the world. Some that are reconciliation but no truth. We also have movements that are truth but no reconciliation. We need the two together in order for it to become good news, right? The gospel. Not punishment, not shame, but empathy. Redeeming and restoring the other as if it was you on the other side. You have a hope for the future for the other. Plans for them to prosper and not for their harm. The battle is not against flesh and blood. The tools of the kingdom often looks different. On the surface, you see one thing, but you need to look beneath. Sin, all sin is, is just an illegitimate way of meeting an illegitimate, a legitimate need. There are anxieties that need to be humanized, and however short-sighted people become, those roots have to be addressed empathetically. Your own wholeness depends on it. It's a necessary internal posture and simultaneously a better external strategy. Once again, it's a better, it's a necessary internal posture and simultaneously a better external strategy. So I have a final thought that I want to leave you with. I heard someone uh, once say that the most powerful force in the individual's life is their perception of themselves. You behave according to how you think you are. And if you think you're lazy, there's nothing in the world that will stop you from being lazy. Okay? But we have something better. We have God's perception uh, of us and the Holy Spirit. So we need to lock into God's realm. Okay? Remind each other of who we truly are in Christ until it sinks in and seeps into our behaviors. We don't just prophesy with our words, though. We prophesy with our lot life and our actions. Some of you uh, don't always have utterance, but your quiet consistency and your actions show it. It may not be flashy, but it reflects the steadfast character and the love of God to the people around you. Although things can be turbulent on the surface, okay, you're like a steady undercurrent, powerful, unswaying. And as we're speaking about prophets here, here, I think God's going to release utterance. Amen. That's it. <laughs> Whew, I got to did it on time. All right. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, David, for that word. That will be the end of our service here. I will close us in prayer and then have just a couple quick announcements before we get to the next thing. So let's let's pray just as a way to to hold up.